How are you feeling? Fine, thanks. Are you in any pain? Not really. Why'd you try to kill yourself? Don't press him right now. I wrote a suicide note. You did? Yeah. Right after I regained consciousness. Can we read it? No. Can you paraphrase it for us? I don't think so. Is it dark? Of course it's dark. It's a suicide note. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 27. We are on the road to 25. Yeah, it only took three months. Yeah, no no kidding. Uh, We are in the midst of of slowly planning our, our transition back into the studio, with both of us back into the studio. So if for some reason the audio that sounds pretty all right to me listening back to it is bothers you in some way um you won't have to deal with that soon hopefully and we're getting a new pivotal film table and chairs it's very exciting Ooh, yeah it'll be good it's made of lawrence kasdan's bones he was not happy about it bones he was not happy (laughs) (laughs) poor lawrence kasdan but anyways, after last week's episode, Tom, <laughs> I was pretty jazzed. Uh-huh. And so I sat, and after we finished our, our, our good discussion on, on Igmar Bergman, um, you know, terrific boxer, uh, <laughs> I watched The Fountainhead from 1949, which is such an abject failure, but in so many ways incredibly entertaining in its failure. Yeah, why did you watch that? It was it was leaving this month in Criterion, and I was like, I think I have to watch Gary Cooper be Gary Cooper mm-hmm. in, a, in an Anne Rand written film. Animation, yeah. And then I watched Experiment on in Terror, uh, which was a Blake Edwards neo noir film, which I gotta say, in a lot of ways, is a pretty solid little flick. Hmm. Um, it well, you, you like know, Blake Edwards, it, Glenn Glenn. Yeah, uh, Glenn Ford plays the villain Ripley in it, and it's it has its opening sequence has actually solidified itself. Kind of, it does this weird sort of. There's this Glenn Ford's Ripley is holding um, Sherwood, and I can't remember the actress's name. Lee Resnick, I want to say off the top of my head, I can't remember if that's right. But he's just holding her mouth the entire time while he's like telling her what he wants her to do and threatening her, mm-hmm. and has this very suggestive because this is you know near the end of the Hayes Code. Um, sexual violence to it that uh, maybe like sit back and wonder, you know, if 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 like Blake Edwards could have done Charles Lawton mm. better than Charles Lawton was able to do with Night of the Hunter. I also watched the last uh, the Lost Weekend from um, Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. which was the uh, 1945 film about you know that that drunk that drunk author played by Ray Milland, it would win, end up winning a bunch of Oscars. And, you know, it ended up winning, I think, you know, Ray Milland win for 
actor and one screenplay director and picture. Uh, but there's a great scene where Ray Milan's suffering from DTs from alcohol. And he's, he's sitting there in a chair and he imagines a bat flying into his house mm -hmm. and eating a mouse and blood getting everywhere and him screaming. Well, last night I was doing a viewing of Straw Dogs and I had had a beer earlier in the night. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting there right as it's getting to the climax of Straw Dogs, the, my film on the list today. And I see something flutter above my head. And I'm like, hmm. What's that must be a weird thing of light. And then it flutters above my head twice more. A bat had got into my apartment and I had my own little <laughs> Ray Meland experience. In the Pivotal Film Tower, I have a hundred high foot ceilings, realistically more like 15, but it nestled itself in the corner. And you know, my dad actually came over to help and respent a good 30 minutes throwing a rolled up rubber glove at it to get it to fly out the door and eventually it flew out the door and we took care of it you know it flew back into the night but i had this own i, I felt more connected now to the lost weekend and ray milan's terror while i suffered from dts and tom <laughs> you know we gotta keep we gotta after fix week, we keep drinking yep and we might get our own tremors from from alcohol maybe from beer number what is this like 76 or so Oh, I don't Anything know. about that? Beer like 76? Sure. Today's beer? You want to introduce it? Sure. It's uh, from also from New England Brewing Company. It's Spin Cycle, number 25, I believe. Yeah, this so is their experimental line of beers. It's, they've had 25 different variations of the same. Yeah, it's Not a, the same type of beer, but different beers. It's an India Pale Ale. Um, it is, say, we changed the hops, malt, and ABV with each new batch. Um, so I don't know necessarily what is different between this one and any of the other ones. Um, but this is a 6.9% and it's a, it is listed as a West coast style. Have you had any of these yet? I've had no, I haven't, I haven't dived into oh. the spin cycle. All right. Air dink it. Oh. Our, our band went dink. I really, Ooh, it's, it's sweetened over the couple of weeks. It's been in my fridge, but I really enjoy this beer. It has a nice, west coast style slight bitterness to it mm -hmm. yeah but it has a very fruit malt finish a fruit not so much like a stone fruit that you typically expect from you know the new england style ipas but but a citrusy sort of a finish i enjoy um, um and i don't know there's like a it's like a there's like that pininess to it, but it's more like an oakiness. And yeah. IPAs usually don't have like an oaky flavor to them, but mm -hmm. this one does. Yeah, I, I'm tasting that more than anything else. and It's enjoyable, um, especially considering it's not uh, fighting with – it's not like an added, um, you know, tree flavor. It's it's kind of – it's present in the actual beer. Um, you know, when we went through our phase and we were only drinking stuff it's, with it's wood not, in it. It's not doing a, it's not doing a banded brewery. Yeah, the Banded Brewery thing. It's not doing that. No, and well, the Banded Brewery I thought was okay. It was, what was it, the Lawson's Finest Liquid Two Roads one with, like, the farmhouse with, you know, half a oak tree or something in it. And it was, that was, that was all. Well, we had the IPA that had, the IPA with Juniper in it. That we both didn't mind. Yeah, I would be, I mean, I'm I, I'm interested in that as a concept. Um, But this this tastes good. This actually tastes like it's supposed to be there and not just it, it tastes like it the beer in its creation has has found this flavor rather than trying to 
insert something into it. So it's good. It's refreshing. I'm going to drink too much of this tonight. So So as we crest, as as we go into hour two, you know, we'll be nice and loose. You may see, you may be. I don't know. I mean, knowing around here, it'll just be, I'll just be shouting at fireworks across the street. Yeah. Assuming. For sure. Speaking of awards for like the streamies or, or whatnot for podcasts, I, I think they might have some awards for podcast acting. Are we going to get an award? Is that what you're going to say? You're going to announce I mean, we're winning an I award? Mean, I mean, I I should for, you know, <laughs> a character a character I play at least once a year who will remain nameless because we, we, we say he's a different person, but maybe people don't realize it's not. Um. But you know, like welcome the Night Vale and all that. I'm sure that's got awards for acting and sure. And like the first movie, the first new movie we're going to talk about today for me plays like a. It's presented more like a a Twilight Zone episode, Paradox Theater. But to me, it's more like a living, breathing uh, film podcast. Yeah, I agree. Or more aptly for me, uh, old 1930s and 40s radio play, and that movie is. Andrew Patterson's The Vest of Night. Number, please. Hello? WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Cool. Aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Edward, it's Faye. I'm a sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show. What a sound. What's going on, Everett? Faye has a little bit of a crush on DJ Everett, and as the town in Cayuga, Cayuga, New Mexico, Cayuga. descends up Cayuga. That sounds like a something that Wiley Coyote would say as he falls to his death. Yeah, um, descends upon a basketball game, high school basketball game. They, in the 1950s, of course, this is set. Uh, walk back to. Faye's job as a switchboard operator and discuss the coming greatness of the future. Um, Faye, you know, then sets off to work while Everett goes off to do his own job and has Faye's, you know, doing her switchboard operation. She starts hearing this weird metallic sound, this humming, and the humming also comes through the radio, uh, through Everett's um, radio broadcast. broadcast. Yeah, yeah, it's this kind of like rock broadcast. It's this typical sort of you know, the I've done much better in the fog. Um, <laughs> and, and she starts wondering what this could be. She's losing people and disconnecting. And eventually Everett, she talks to Everett over the phone and he says, this could be good radio. And they start investigating it and asking about if anybody has any information. They get a phone call from this guy, Billy, who says he's an old, um, military man who worked in these secret sites and you know in in the desert where there was these big things under huge tarps and that the same sound as he was leaving from the job emanated from that same space and they get another call from this old lady mabel who says that 
you know, she talks about this, this, this train that had a bunch of passengers missing and the sound came and her, her son um, was always attracted to the sound and always would look up in the, in the light when there would be these huge constant windstorms. These windstorms kind of flow throughout the entire film. She would look up and hear the sound and eventually he too kind of disappeared. His footsteps um, walked out into the, into the dirt and was taken away. And she says that the people in the sky are taking it. This film is set during the Soviet American space race. Said, uh, you know, eventually Everett and Faye go out to see the lights in the sky themselves, and are they see the spaceships, the the close encounters of the third kind type spaceships, and are sucked up into the air as the basketball game ends and people come out because these aliens always seem to come when nobody's around. And that's the best of night. A first film from Andrew Patterson, uh, made on a budget of about $700,000. Uh, he spent around 20000 of that removing the three-point line, which I have never seen in my life. Yeah. Somebody waste that much of a budget on a thing that's not only that so trivial, but a sequence that so painfully takes away from a film as that. Because uh, yeah. that this this widely hailed go kart scene, as it is, because they they put it they watched um they went to go see Lawrence of Arabia the Patterson and I think the D P mm-hmm. um and a few others like the producers went to go see Lawrence of Arabia and they're trying to figure out the scene because apparently this long it's it's this time lapse t- like long take that travels through the town to show I guess how empty the town is to show the basketball game and they couldn't figure out and they saw Lawrence of Arabia and it came to them to do this go kart sequence. It ended up taking them a lot, like several takes and $20,000 to remove the 30 point lines from a local high school gym. And it, it's it been widely hailed. It's kind of like a really inventive, smart moment in this film. Really? Um, it is. Yeah. Like they're saying, like, oh, re- like a lot of, I can't remember the review off the top of my head. I want to, was it possibly the Guardian review? Said I could see, you know, this being a hallmark uh, of him and, you know, him getting 20 times the budget and doing something much more impressive with the same secret shot, which is just, okay, you know, a, a sped up version of Sam Raimi's evil dead, you know, steady cam shots. But regardless, I, I really enjoyed this movie, but the thing I have to get off my chest is that is absolutely what I call the first time jitters of a director where he has to put in his little, his little, bit of spice into a film yeah and i've never seen something so t- remove me from a film i was actually about ready to write that film off because of that because it's it's too long it's it's nauseant it then introduces a basketball scene that is point absolutely pointless and clutters what's overall a fairly tight film so i don't understand what the fuck anybody is saying when they say that scene's great yeah, I, um... I will say that the two sequences. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I will say that there, there's other moments in this film that I think resoundingly work. Um, but I, I think you have criticisms on that moment as well. Oh, well, I mean, we can kind of they're all encompassing. I just think that it's clearly a go kart. It makes no sense why the camera should be so fucking low to the ground. Um, and I didn't even really want to swear there. I just find it really aggravating and stupid. I can't even believe that anyone would say that it's 
um, a significant or worthy shot of 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 specific critical attention because it just kind of sucks. Um, but I think that, uh, to your point, I think there's when this film tries to do something other than watch people listen to other people tell stories, it doesn't work at all. But when it does sit and let you watch other people listen to people tell stories, it really kind of um, the mood. He's really good at conveying mood and really good at kind of building a tension through dialogue and through um, through space in the dialogue, through silence. Um, but then I would say that the first movie jitters are the, you know, feeling the need to construct action sequences out of nothing um you know i don't know why she went to get her sister and the other the cousin that was supposed to be watching her sister was just on the roof so she was on the other side of the house because we saw the house when she pulled up to it and there was nobody on the roof so she was on the other side of the roof i think she was at her boyfriend's house on the roof so she left the baby to go to her boyfriend's house to watch Something in the sky on a roof. Listen, it was good enough for Annie to leave Lindsay to go have sex with Bob, right? No, Bob? No, Paul. To go have sex with Paul before Lori was even... Oh, no, wait. Annie does drop off Lindsay. So Annie's a much more responsible babysitter than this asshole is. Uh, Halloween. Oh, right. What thing I think of a irresponsible babysitter. Sorry. Uh, no, I, I would agree. There's, there's uh, the the moments where this film works the best, and I talk about the, the two parts where I think this film works the best are when it's at its slowest and its most contemplative. That long shot where Faye's just kind of sitting there fussing around with the switchboard. It's great. Is great yep. fucking cinema. It's really solid, tense cinema, and a lot, a lot of people want to compare it to Spielberg oh my God. or like Stranger Things, but it's, it's got, it's not that it's, it's different than that. Well, it so, has this, this level of underlying quiet dread that is, it's so focused on sound design and, and less on the visual acumen of what you're seeing mm-hmm. that it's, it's something else entirely different. So it has this really unique signature to it. Well, I um, would the I, same moment happens later. No, I would say though that there's a the problem with that scene though is that it takes a minute to get there and for it to slow down and for some reason this movie is at like warp speed and then really slow. Like there's no reason for everything to be happening so fast. There's no reason for Everett to be kind of spinning in his like 50s lingo way, you know what I mean? I can't even understand half the things that are coming out of his mouth because he's got a cigarette in his hand, his head is always turning, and he's talking about nothing. And the same thing happens when she finally sits down at the at the, you know, at the desk. She's like putting in like the Jackson saying like, Who, what's your number? Ba 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 ba. And then she slows down. There's no real, there's no real reason for it to amp up so much, um, or to be so amped up leading into these quieter moments. It'd be actually much more interesting to see it kind of be a normal person, like two normal people having a conversation that doesn't involve Adderall, um, and then kind of slipping into that quietness. You may not need a six minute go-kart tracking shot with a two-minute basketball game in the center of it if you just kind of slow everything down a little bit. See, I disagree with that That take uh, on terms of the opening. Like, I really like the opening for me works because it's hard to hear. It's a little frantic. 
if there's too much energy everett kind of does this weird george bailey at the high school dance-esque bravado um but things start to slow down as everett and fair walking and kind of like they're still talking over one another when they're talking about the adventures that come but the thing for me that works about that is what are the two things are going to happen for for a viewer either a viewer is going to really tune out of that and just kind of give up on the film or if the, the viewer is going to like listen a little closer so for me it really kind of it makes me lean in to like this, this franticness it, it quiets itself down as they're walking and then by the time she gets to the switchboard and you have that long take you're really paying attention and the sound yeah, humming sounds a little more amplified. And I think it's kind of a risk because it could lead you in two ways. I think I see a lot of people because maybe that bit, that beginning is a little too long and it, it feels unintentional could tune out of this pretty quickly. Well, I, just, I think if you stay there, it kind of rewards it for it's it's it feels intended. I guess what, intentional. Actually. Well, also that's interesting because I did, it didn't really feel intentional to me. It actually felt the it felt the opposite. It felt like um it felt or it, it Maybe it felt too intentional and in that it felt too on the nose. Like their conversations about like radio and recording things and, and you know, the places that are like technology is going to take you both metaphorically um, in terms of your life, but also in reality, like into the into the future, um, which is fine, I suppose. And into a spaceship. Into, and also exactly. into a spaceship. I think all movies like this are going to do that stuff. You know what I mean? I, I Part of me was kind of willing to accept it. I'm not 100% sure how um, intentional the nature of that beginning conversation was. Um, it almost just kind of seemed like nervous energy more oh. than it seemed like trying to build to build onto something. Um which is not again, which I would have forgiven if they didn't get into a car six times, and I would have forgiven if, um, you know, they didn't do the tracking shot, and I would have forgiven if they she didn't go get her sister pointlessly. Like none of that stuff really matters. They they just kind of develop stakes for something that didn't really require like additional stakes. Which is not to say that I didn't enjoy it. Like I think those those quiet moments that you said that you talked about, I think are pretty good. I mean, even despite the fact that the actress playing Mabel is not really very, she's not really very good. And I was, when I was watching that, I was thinking of the uh, part in Wayne's world too, where Wayne stops at the gas station and that guy, uh, you know, that he asked for directions and that guy, that old man is like, Oh, um, uh, and, and, and Wayne's like, this, is this the best we can do? And then they bring in Charles, Charlton Heston, to deliver those lines. I was oh, like, yeah. Oh, I would love for them to just someone to escort this lady out and bring out someone who can really deliver this stuff like really, really well. Um, because, because that was Thomas the Thomas McKenzie just pops in. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's where Elizabeth Moss comes in. Um, no, cause I actually think I, I found Jake Horowitz both um, like obnoxious, but also really, like worthy of this of this role, and because I think there's moments when he's listening that he's really bringing, uh, like an intensity to 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 the listening, which I thought was really good, and it worked when he was just listening on the phone and it was just him, and it seemed sillier when it was playing off someone who's like delivering these lines so hamfistedly. And I'm sorry, um, Gail Cronauer, Cronauer, um. 
it just it didn't like that those line readings didn't work for me no i I agree that that uh like for me the other significant scene that works is when you know everett's having that conversation with billy yeah because bruce davis is is really solid at kind of delivering that exposition oh yeah and Jay Horowitz, or as I call him, young Edward Norton, because there's parts where if you close your eyes, he sounds just like Edward Norton. Um, the, the sense of urgency that's in Jay Horowitz's voice throughout it, because you you get that real sense that like he sees us as his like opportunity to burst out of this world. Yeah. Um, when he's allowed to play off of that by somebody with talent, like like, and you kind of get this nuance to to his character, to Everett's character of, of, of this urgency to get out and of this being the opportunity. But with Grail Kornauer, like it, it ends up feeling like a real facade and it ends up being very contradictory to one another. And that sequence, while I understand its necessity for exposition, especially looking at it as a radio play, because this is why I see this film has, is kind of just like a living, breathing, you know, 1930s, 1940s, you know, Edgar Allan Poe story or the lottery or the monkey's Paul brought to life. Like you'd listen to on CBS radio hour. Um, like those things work for that, but man, her performance is so flat and, and, and has all the expected beats that just don't work. And, and it is really pointless. And to that point, um, I do agree with the first director jitters is this movie's at its most tense and at its most enthralling when it's, slow that entire car ride sequence where like the sounds start playing and the two in the front slowly tilt their head up that like actually really got to me like that's really truly kind of scary stuff because you kind of see it you see it coming for sure but the sound and everything and the slowness allows it to build up and build up and you're anticipating it and once it happens it works but when you know Faye's just running the fuck around town and the camera's just running with her on that steady cam i'm like i don't need this cut cut all the shit out, cut that tracking shit, shot, shot out, and throw like, if you want to make it a feature, make it a 73 minute long feature by throwing a five minute scene of Everett talking to some sort of hillbilly who talks about the lights at first. You right. know, kind of like the introduction to like, oh yeah, I saw through the clouds a light and the wind's ripping. Like, like expand, like Faye has that conversation on the switchboard, expand that conversation towards a dialogue between Everett and somebody. So you get like that slow introduction of, of the events well, I think to I think um, I don't need like real actual visual energy because it sounds important good enough in it to to carry it. Well, I think you're. I, I, it's one of these things where I just think that the the idea the idea never coalesced in his head fully. It came. He saw what the movie would look like, and he envisioned the tracking shot, but he didn't imagine like a fully realized narrative here in the sense that if you're dealing with a small town and like you just said hillbillies and that's what kind of jogged it in my into my head um and this is something that stephen king would do this is something that like all of the purveyors of this kind of of story would do if you have a small town there is inevitably going to be someone that believes in aliens and there's inevitably going to be someone if you're doing a radio broadcast where you can call in at like eight in the middle of the night or whatever whatever time it is you're going to have lunatics calling a basketball game where yeah, a basketball game where every normal person is at, a, at the basketball. Right. normal pe- So the non-normal people would totally call a radio station to tell them that they think that there's aliens. And it would be the one time where it was, like, really true. And that's how you can establish all those small-town bona fides and stuff. You know what I mean? Instead of letting it just – instead of doing this tracking shot, we're just like, look how – 
ever empty and run down this blue collar town is you can just do that narratively and i think instinctually and i know this coming you know as an english major um you want to not you want to show it you don't want to tell them but i think there's ways to show it that aren't just really long pointless super skateboard low to the ground tracking shots there's ways there's ways to do it the thing that's that, that the movie that most is reminiscent for me with this is Jack Clayton's um, something wicked this way comes. Oh yeah. Um, in the sense where there's a lot of good, scary, bona fide talent at, in there uh, that is really muddled. And you know, that's more studio interference. Like Clayton kind of directed a darker film, but um, you know, you see a lot of potential and there's these real moments of palpable tension that are, really muddled with just nonsense. And for me, ultimately, this film really works because I think the strength of those moments far outweigh the muddlesome, Mm -hmm. the muddledness of it. And it's a short, it's a really taut movie. Like, it's fairly short. It could have been shorter by like 10 minutes or so. But, you know, 89 minutes isn't going to kill me. And I think in those 89 minutes are, from a sound design perspective, such fantastically well done sequences of five to 10 minutes that like it, it makes it worth it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I think it would be better if it was a, uh, if it was a, an episode of an, an anthology TV, if it was actually an episode of an anthology TV show. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I want, I, I have a speculation, a, a theory that he plans on making more of these no. as like anthology movies. Well, I hope the so second one is, I hope the second one is better. That's that's what I hope, and, and not and not because not because this one was bad, but because like there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, but he's got it. Like like I would I would not say it's a failing. There's, he just he needs to like he doesn't need to do some of the stuff he does. And we talk about this a lot. You don't need to do some of the stuff you do as a director, and it's it's understandable. I'm, gonna I'm be, sure any one of us would do the same thing. I'm going to be very very honest with you. If the world wasn't burning right now and people could leave their fucking houses, nobody would care about this movie. But because nobody has anything to watch and because it was like a new movie and it was played at Sundance and all this other stuff, it got a lot of press that it wouldn't have gotten if like, I don't know what, what was supposed to come out on in the end of May black. If black widow came out, people wouldn't have space for writing about this movie. They would have been writing think pieces about black widow. And you know, I'm okay with this having space. I'm less okay with like the day that love, birds had space <laughs> yeah yeah no that this is way better there's, than there's 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 a place for this film at least there's there's less of a place for for love this and my this and my spy can stay there yeah um another movie that is the beneficiary is the uh has the misfortune i guess it all depends on how you look at it of being released with a lot of expectations based solely on the fact that it is you know, new coronavirus content and it is playing uh, on Hulu now. So if you have a Hulu um, subscription, you get to watch this movie. It also um, played at Sundance and got immediately scooped up. Uh, Surely. See your secret looks. Freud would have had a field day. I'm counting down from three. Three, two, one. 
becomes of your dear heroine? What happens to all lost girls? You should you should break your fingers doing air quotes right now. Uh, Shirley Jackson and this is played by Elizabeth Moss. Uh, her husband uh, Stanley Hyman is played by the great Michael Stuhlbarg, who is really good in this. Um, I don't understand what he's doing, but he's 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 good at being at whatever it, at whatever it is that he's doing. It's pretty it's pretty good. Um, when the movie opens, uh, Shirley has recently got an idea for a book, the book that will eventually become the actual Shirley Jackson novel, Hangs a Man. It just so happens to coincide with the arrival of um, Stanley's, uh, I don't know, what do you call those in, what do you call those in college? Like a, a He's like a visiting professor, uh, I guess, and he comes with the hope of one day being offered a, a, a tenure-ship profession. He's going to live, they're going to live, him and his wife... Um, uh, Rose, played by Odessa Young, are going to live at their their house um, in Bennington, uh, where Stanley teaches. Um, what ensues is a kind of weird psychological horror type thing, where um, Shirley gets in the head of Rose, and uh, subsequently Rose, in Shirley's mind, becomes a kind of um, vehicle for her to lay out some of her ideas that she has for the story about a girl who a, a, a Bennington teenager who went missing or a Bennington college student who went missing. Um, things get kind of muddled and confused. There's a lot of relationship stuff mixed into here where um, Stanley and, and Shirley have a kind of open marriage agreement, but um, it's not, you know, Shirley's really not as okay with it as she makes it seem like. And, um, there's a lot of that stuff. I, I suppose there's a lot of, it's one of those movies where there's a lot of minutia that kind of can go into the plot where it makes it really hard to describe the plot because there's just a lot of moving parts all the time. Um, Josephine Decker, Decker most recently uh, directed Madeline's Madeline, which I really liked a lot. There's This movie reminds me a lot of uh, that film in its aesthetics. Um, we're going to have to have a conversation, Mario, about what's going on here. Um, you said you didn't like it. And, but you couldn't necessarily put your finger on why. Um, I hesitated to say that I did like it, but I couldn't put my finger on why. I think I like the idea of it, and I like Josephine Decker as a director. And I, I like Elizabeth Moss in it. Although, again, I don't know what she's doing. I like Michael Stuhlbarg in it, but I don't know what he's doing either. I kind of like the script, but I'm not 100% sure why. Or what the script is trying to say, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure why they left out so much of Shirley Jackson's, you know, actual autobiography when they're hewing, I suppose, from what I understand, pretty close to it in a lot of in a lot of respects. Um, I guess I just don't understand it. And I thought Richard Brody's review in the New Yorker recently got pretty close to figuring it out but I also think he's doing one of those Richard Brody things which I sometimes really like which is he's taking these kind of uh intellectual leaps trying to make sense of of what is on the screen and ultimately he come he finds a place where he, that he enjoys the film I'm don't think I'm prepared to go there with him um I don't know it's it ended up it was a movie I was really looking forward to but it ended up being kind of a muddle 
for me and kind of confusing. And when it ended, I wasn't sure where he left things and I wasn't sure why I just watched it. Um, other yeah. than to watch Elizabeth Moss just do Elizabeth Moss things, which is fine, but you know, what's the payoff? I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think I think the best way I summed it up was just in my instantaneous notes and thoughts to you was that I found it disjointed, lingering without a sense of purpose, often meandering, and it wholly devotes itself of stakes while cohorting with relatively dimensionless characters. And I think that still holds up, like even though it's a lot of word vomit, because I, I still can't necessarily put my finger on what I dislike about this film. I, and I guess what I mostly dislike is that there are these real interesting moments interspersed of, of you know, really solid performances and, and playing off of one another, you know, Stolberg, uh, Moss to an extent, and, and Jesse Young, who I actually really enjoyed in this. I really liked what she was bringing to the table. Um, so you have these, but you have these sequences, slave sequences that are really interesting and they're kind of gallivanting with sequences that are either ultimately feel like fat or plot points like the, the three different plot strings that are running together that that aren't as interesting or are really experimental storytelling aspects uh, of the quote-unquote biopic that you know she kind of does similar things in madeline's madeline that here to me fall flat narratively and from a character standpoint yeah um, and that's the thing like nothing really feels in service of anything else well i just don't know i don't get a sense after watching it of who shirley jackson is and i don't mean as a real person because i don't care about that i mean as a character in this movie i don't get a sense of what makes her tick or what she's what she's looking to do. Um, I suppose she's looking to assert some independence over her life, but I don't actually know how true that is. Um, I suppose she's manipulating Rose in a way, but I actually, there's, is there too much friendship like present in the film for that to be the case either? Um, I found myself, which I said to you, I was like, can I, can you like the filmmaking and not really like the film? So I obviously enjoyed the, kind of impressionistic nature of the of of the aesthetic that she's playing with it actually reminds me a lot of um not necessarily in the in like the nature of the film but in just kind of how they both operate it reminds me of kind of like a julian schnabel film and but the difference being that julian schnabel kind of there's like an etherealness there's a spirituality to all of his films where they kind of rise above they rise above normal life and then everything's kind of but it stays. It's, there's scenes that ground them. You know what I mean. So you have legitimate feelings and emotions and stakes, and then he just kind of sends the film soaring to to make sense of those or to really feel those things. This seems kind of like the opposite in the sense that she's she's such an earthy ger- director um, that she sends the film instead of just like soaring through the air, she almost sends it just kind of like scuttling all over the ground, just like looking for like bits and pieces of like detritus or ephemera to just kind of pick up and look at and try to make sense of. Um, 
and like the soundtrack goes into that, like all those kind of all those voices, the, those kind of choral passages that are that are interspersed through it. There's like lots of different camera techniques. There's lots of different. I mean, she really likes close ups. It was one actually one of the problems I had with Madeline's Madeline was that everything seems so close up. It was actually just kind of making me like a little uncomfortable. Um, I don't know. I, I love the impressionistic nature of the movie. I just think that the movie that she decided to make impressionistically, um, there was nothing. She it wasn't grounded in anything. It was just a lot of impressionistic fluttering and 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 searching without any kind of without ever coming up with anything that meant anything. And, and uh, everything's I think in service of that. I don't want to say failure. Everything's in service of that kind of um, confusion, including the performances, which I think are roundly good save um for the guy that plays fred logan logan lerman um who i think you can't ask for much from logan lerman no he's just is he's just doing what he's doing but it it just i i i didn't feel like me and my wife talked about it and i was like what did you think she's like i asked i i I found that i wanted to think about it more and then i couldn't think and then i just couldn't think about it like i forgot what was what happened in it to think about it and i was like that's kind of i kind of feel that way too i'm not 100 percent sure what was ever going on at any one moment to kind of consider and, and piece together. Um, I don't know, but I'm probably, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Richard Brody's right on this one. I think, I think what you're saying about Schnebel is, is spot on in the sense that when he has these narrative flourish, when he has these flourishes of effortlessness, as you say, there is an in- narrative inherency to it. And, a, a structural purpose whereas with this film it feels as though these moments those moments interrupt the film mm-hmm. for a thematic purpose i'm not necessarily sure why well, they exist you know what and, i think and, is and weird so they, they're they're dis, they're jarring here's and, what and i would say i think that's a really good point but i think the opposite is true i think I think then we haven't had a gold star point in a long time. We haven't just felt we haven't felt very gold star, but I think the narrative interrupts the other moments. You know, instead of it being the other way, I actually think the narrative gets in the way of making this film really interesting. Like they keep trying to insert like a story into it. I'm just like, oh, I, this worked better when it was just Elizabeth Moss laying on the ground with some sound effects that I couldn't place in like a really loud banging and you know whatever like that worked better than anything that came out of their mouths trying to establish a a, a, a sense of uh, coherent character or narrative flow and I guess this is the divisiveness between us is that I always seek out the narrative and you seek out the 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 art the the structural disintegration um and I guess actually, I, I you know I agree that there's there's this real conflict in it. And to me, the parts that work the best are when the narrative's allowed to breathe. That scene with um that actress, the dean's wife, uh, was like, oh, it's not le- it's not good enough, Leslie Manville. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually was wondering if it was I her. At first, I was like, is that Leslie Manville? And I was like, I look, I saw it. I was like, is that Leslie Manville? And like, why is she doing a pretty mediocre job in this that yeah. wasn't also robert wool's in this movie can't i don't remember robert wool being in this movie yeah he was um, um randy but i just do not visually remember him being here 
But like the, the scene in which um, she, you know, kind of dumps the wine on there and then says like, he'll bore with you in a week. To me is the moments that work as well as Michael Stuhlberg's kind of like brandishing and, and, and battering down of Logan Lerman. And then um, when he talks with his wife, he talks with Shirley and says, you know, if it she's like that bad, he's like, if it was awful, at least be entertaining. Um, was it tremendously, uh, uh, tremendously like mediocre or something? Yeah, not, um, it's not. It's not necessarily mediocre. He says that like confident. It's like tremendously confident. confident yeah, is yeah. Shouldn't like shouldn't exist. Like those moments to me work really well. And I think the reason why I feel that way is Michael Stuhlberg. Like Odessa Young's performance really works for me in this because she's playing off of those moments. Like she, she's allowing herself to kind of have this energy to kind of jump in between this like two different energies that this film is putting out. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Moss is doing the same to a lesser extent, but Michael Stuberg's always kind of on the ground and always kind of like, he's kind of just doing a narrative schmuck as it were, mm. like as Stanley Hyman's being presented and kind of along with him is Elizabeth Moss kind of, she, she plays with those kind of flourishes of like, on the ground and, and you know the kind of decker pretenses but those two really feel as though they're in kind of a biopic with some creative flourishes so like odessa young has the not the energy but odessa young maybe has the she's still novel this entire game to where she's following the direction mm -hmm. and, and playing to the two different parts Whereas Michael Stolberg, especially, and, and to a lesser level, Elizabeth Moss, feel as though they're acting just in kind of a slightly eccentric biopic. Hmm. And they kind of carry that energy to me throughout this entire film. I really want, I, I don't necessarily buy into the love for Elizabeth Moss's performance in this. And, I think it's good. It's not as, I think it's, yeah. we're, we're getting to a point of diminishing returns here. Um, I think we've crested. Weirdly, at like the Invisible Man, where you go, uh, you know, let's take let's take Handmaid's Tale and top of the um, uh, top of the lake out of it for a second, and and Mad Men, and just look at like her crazy Elizabeth Mossy and movie performances, and go uh, Queen of Earth, um, her smell, um, what's the other one? I don't remember. Um, we said Invisible Man and Invisible Man. But I think her smell, her smells, her smells different though. Like her smell, like this. The last couple of films, I like. I liked her Invisible Man because I think that's mostly like her at that kind of like broken best. But her smell, like, oh yeah. The thing with this is there's a lot of like yeah. assertiveness and bulliness in Shirley, that is so much more there in her smell, and like her smell is like a, a significantly better performance than this and, and i guess that's kind of the issue is like her smell also has those moments like even though her smell is a, a fictitious feel um her smell kind of follows those same kind of like biopicy, but mixed with this really kind of impressionistic moments and it's just such a much better film in terms of its flow yeah and elizabeth moss plays off plays off those peaks and valleys so well that like um you know, Alex, what's, what's his last name? I can't remember his name. Uh, the director of First Smell, Alex. Uh, Ross Perry. 
Alex Ross Perry just that they, they those two of them felt so much more in tune with one another than Decker and Moss do. And and, and so it feels as though there's two very competing tracks of audio playing off of each other in this film to where I'm kind of just left befuddled and then bemused and then bored. Um, yeah, I, I don't dis I don't disagree with any of that. I think there's something weird. There's something weird here. And I, I, is it, um, there's no sense of purpose. There's no sense of aiming towards something. And even if it's a madness, um, like she's doing in, in, in queen of earth, um, which is not necessarily directed towards like something very specific. Um, it feels like it is. It feels like there's an end point to her, to her insanity where it will break and she'll either, she'll go one way or the other. Um, this, the, I, I think they try to establish that the, that's the case here in regards to her book, that once the book is complete or she feels comfortable with it or, or she's, um, solidified her independence from Stanley in some way by not showing him. Um, or when, when Rose finally leaves and she can kind of find that separation, um, that that's the point, but I don't, they don't sell that anywhere in the movie. They, or uh, that's not sold emotionally in the movie. You don't, you don't get a sense of, of her like awakening at all. She's just a train wreck. And then in the last two scenes of the movie, she's normal. And you're just kind of like, well, that's weird. I, and I think the thing that, that, that to that point is more like Decker needs to find her people. Like she feels like she's going to be that filmmaker who needs to be so carefully in tune with her actors mm-hmm. that everyone's on the same page. Cause I feel like her and Odessa Young are on the same page here. Like Odessa Young's kind of playing to what it, there's, there's a consistency mm-hmm. between the scenes and what's going on. Like, like, you know, um, her character just, you know, Rose just just will ebb and flow with each passing scene with no real consistency from a narrative standpoint, but from a visual, visceral um, standpoint uh-huh. works. And, and that makes it, regardless of, of how much it makes sense, it makes it compelling and works. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel... You know, Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlberg are kind of just like they don't have that same sort of closeness or they don't have that same sort of vision that she does. So I think Decker just needs to find her people to work with to make her films work. Maybe. Yeah, I this is one of those weird. This is a kind of um, I see it as a weird anomaly. I don't really know what to do with it. Um, and I think, unfortunately for me, as this is something that I was looking forward to, it's not something I'm going to be thinking about for a long time um, going forward. Um you know, we'll see what the rest of the year does, and maybe it finds its way onto something because of other things. Maybe it's like a soundtrack thing, or a score, or a sound editing, or you know, not that that stuff necessarily matters, but just in terms of comparing it to other things, um, it just seems it seems strange. It was a strange it was a strange experience. I mean, you could I can tell you right now if the, if the year ended right now, it would show up nowhere. On my, on, like if Which no is, films came out. For- yeah, which is like a year. weird thing to like. Even if today at midnight no films came out, it would get like a best scene for when Stuhlberg dresses down Logan Norman. It would get like an yeah. eight spot for that. Um, I just I like that again. Entire not that it matters. I'm just it's one of those things when you when you encounter a film that you are kind of struggling with. You, I'm I'm looking for a way to try to make sense of it. 
um, and I, I'm I'm struggling to do so. So yeah. the, one, the one thing I will say about this is uh, just to finish is after seeing this and, and loving Boardwalk Empire, man, I need more like Michael Stuhlberg has a bad guy performance. Oh yeah, I mean, I, let's get Michael Stuhlberg and do it in any kind of performance. He's excellent in everything. Um, but as a bad guy, like like he's such like he's being portrayed as such like the good guy, and then also like the spineless guy. That like I just need more like because he's for such a small guy, there's this he has this like real imposition to him that like well he always off of. yeah, and he always looks like he's gonna he can inflict. Let's do, let's do a River Wild remake, a River Wild remake, and make him Kevin Bacon's character instead of the David Strathairn. No, he won't be David Strathairn. I mean, he could play both roles actually. Do it. That would They're be twins amazing. twins in this remake. And now, is Meryl Streep still in it? Or does Elizabeth Moss take the Meryl Streep, the Meryl Streep book? I was going to say, I could see, I could see Meryl, Elizabeth Moss doing the Meryl Streep role. Mm, that'd be pretty good. That'd be pretty good. All right. I think we'll be right back with our number 27s. If AEW world champion John Moxley is the purveyor of violence, then Mario in the sophomore year of college was the financier of violence. As I've said many times before on this podcast, I had my summer of the grizzle, my summer of the dirt, my summer (laughs) of getting within the misanthropy of life because man, I had a, a try hard 14 year old experience in my sophomore year of college. And what I heard from the grapevine was that one of the films that was the transfer of film from the year of the Hayes codes to the years of the Hayes codes to the new Hollywood, you know, in addition to the films like the 1969 Best Picture of Midnight Cowboy or previously discussed Clockwork Orange or French Connection was another film from 1971. Those two previous films from 1971, Midnight Cowboy from 69. Um, And it was from a a director who I talked about two weeks ago and I'd seen one of his films and had loved and I'd seen a few of his others and I just had to see this one. And when I saw it, uh, it was one of a few things that summer in addition to uh william s burroughs naked lunch that that turned my stomach a bit it left me a bit unsettled with my desire to see that to see what i thought would be the violence but the violence necessarily didn't bug me but but the rest of it yeah that film is sam peckinpah's Revenge flick from 1971, Straw Dogs. Okay, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. This is David Sumner. All his life, he's been running away, turning his back on trouble, involvement, and confrontation. Until now. There are five men out there. I know that. He took his wife and fled to an English country town. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Take your hands off me. What are you doing? Hmm? 
Mm -hmm. An animal. He thought he could find peace and refuge. Instead, he found that a man can't hide forever. Coming off the abject financial failure that was the Ballad of Cable Hogue in 1970, uh, Sam Peckinpah was looking for a feature to kind of get him back onto the horse. He was, at this point in time, considered notoriously difficult. Um, he was dealing with the throes of severe substance abuse and alcoholism that would plague him for the remainder of his life. And uh, eventually ABC Pictures uh, president Daniel Melnick presented him with a screenplay and a story um, for The Siege of Trencher's Farm by Gordon and Williams, which is about a family besieged upon a, their English cottage's house by a group of hooligans, as it were. Of this book, Peckinpah had to say, I think Mr. Williams has a penchant for his work. I don't. Reading it <laughs> is drowning in your own vomit. Which nice. I think is, is fantastic. But, you know, a man needs to buy his booze. He needs to buy his coffee and brandy. And so Peckinpah started work on this film. And uh, the first two weeks of this film were pretty disastrous. Um, the film tells the tale of a American mathematician who uh, flying away from the tumultuous nature of America in the late 1960s, early 1970s, uh, goes with his wife to her childhood town, to her father's inherited house, and continues his work as an applied mathematician, uh, working on a, a grant that he has. Meanwhile, Ruffians of the town are employed to fix the factory and the roof of the nearby building on the property. Uh, one of those said ruffians is Charlie, an ex of David Sumner, the aforementioned mathematician played by Dustin Hoffman's wife, Amy. Uh, things are pretty tumultuous. David is uh, very learned, but we don't want to necessarily reserve man, but a uh, spineless man um <laughs> whereas the ruffians are are more a hard drinking flateful very forwardly masculine bunch they have they spines have uh, they have fines what I said they have spines they have oh they do have they do have spines they are not um i can't remember the the creatures in biology they're spineless but david's one of those <laughs> uh Throughout the days that they are working, there's there's a lot of tumultuous natures between the two, as you know, David kind of presents his learnedness with a bit of an affront to the town folk, and the town folk kind of mock David's uh, perceived cowardliness. Um, also in the town is a uh, mentally disabled older man, played by the always delightful to see David Warner. I love when I see David Warner in a feature. Yeah, like Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Oh, of course. You know, when you can get Kevin Nash and David Warner together, I know. you know things are going really well for yep. each other. 
David Warner is pursued by a teenage girl, Janice, related to the hard town drinker, Tom Hedden. Um, eventually, during a church uh, gathering, um, Charlie, uh, sorry, Henry, the David Warner's mentally disabled character and Janice kind of run off together. It's, it's found out that's happened. Uh, Henry accidentally kills um, Janice and he is then hit accidentally by David as they're driving away from the church service because Amy is having um, terrible anxiety because in the days previous she was raped by Charlie and Charlie's friend, Norman Scoot. Um, so as, as you would expect, uh, he, Niles is hit and taken in by the Sumners and the four ruffians and um, their patriarch descend upon the house and David Sumner stands his ground, kills them all, as he says, I, I killed them all. Um, and, and that's that's the end of the film. Uh, the house invasion ending with a whole lot of murder. You know, there's there's a weird feeling I have with this one. It's it's a film that's on my list because of its lingering effect on me, not necessarily because of the content of the film. I think, and I, I kind of withheld from saying this, I think Sam Peckinpah is a real piece of shit, personally, uh, as a person. Um, <laughs> I withhold saying that from last week from Igmar Bergman, because Igmar Bergman, I think, is a very complex individual who has a complex history, who deals with it with a really a lot of introspection, a bit of misanthropy, a bit of cynicism, a tremendous amount of cynicism, but there's at least a lot of intellectual contemplation of the ways that he feels. Meanwhile, Sam Peckinpah was noted to say, I find insular inbred people wherever I've gone. He's, with whatever demons he had from the war, and no matter his hatred of violence, he is an extremely problematic individual. And this movie seeps with that. This movie breathes, despite its attempt at its anti-violence tone at times, it seeps with somebody who is so inherently out of tune with people and out of tune with even the slightest bit of compassion and empathy mm -hmm. for people that it is a very unsettling watch. This production was plagued from the beginning. The first two weeks of it were disastrous. Uh, they they shot the pub scenes first, and they were nearly impossible to shoot on location. Uh, Bruce Sirtis, the director of photography, said that the small size of the location made it impossible. Pack and Paul was drinking night and day uh, during production. It was also suffering from walking pneumonia. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and him quarreled. The Hoffman wanted him fired. And eventually, Daniel Melnick, the ABC president, who was this was his first um, film production, shut down production for two weeks and told Peckinpah to clean up his act or he was going to be fired. Um, eventually they came back and uh, you know, the film was made, but 
there are it, it breathes with a man who's for one those pub scenes look bad oh jesus they're flat they're they're <clears throat> awful looking there's there a lot of these a lot of these interior scenes where peck and paw's not doing the peck and paw things don't look good they don't sound good they're not composed well there's nothing interesting really going on and so you see inherently a man who doesn't give a flying fuck about a lot of what's going on mm-hmm. and also is is deeply deeply troubled um but what puts this film where it is for me is is you know i would put naked lunch from that same year in my top pivotal books because it still draws me to what i am and what i take from something um which is which is a really selfish way of saying it but what do you mean you know i guess that's what i guess that's well i guess that's what the pivotal film motto is is is, is more just like the what it does for us mm-hmm. um what 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 research for um and and it's a film that i always have a constantly shifting opinion of when it does its action sequences it does it extremely well especially in the finale the finale is a really frantic energetically shot scene of action that's constantly flowing um but beyond that it's such a problematic film i watched this in 2006 feeling inherently uncomfortable with everything because of so many reasons um as Pauline Kael says, you know, this is the first American film that is a fascist work of art. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. you know, it feels imprudent to say that a lot of people had a problem with the violence of this film. And I don't necessarily have a problem with the violence of the film. But I think when she says it's a fascist piece of art, it's because every single man in this film, even the ones who are presented with a bit of very slight sympathy are with a very hopeful redemptive arc are still misogynistic pieces of shit who are so utterly insecure with every facet of what they are. And it's done with such a lack of literacy and self-awareness that the entertainment and the excitement I took from that finale made me feel revolted. Um, and in response, actually, to that criticism from Pauline Kael, Peckinpah had to say this. And this just goes to show when people say, like, Peckinpah was stating, was stating, like, something deeper and was making a comment. A lot of modern takes have been like, no, this is an inherently anti-misogynistic film. Uh. This statement shows that that's wrong. I like Kale. She's a feisty little gal, and I enjoy drinking with her, which I've done on occasion. But here... She's cracking walnuts in her ass. <laughs> Look, what if they give me war to peace to do instead of Trencher's farm? I'm reasonably sure I would have made a different picture. And you go back to that, that, that rape sequence and, and you, you know, some of the things that people take from this are so gross and i remember when i saw this i, I was just like one I, I i had the criterion 
collection DVD, the now out of print Criterion collection DVD is really solid Criterion though. Um, and they had an interview with Dennis Hopper on it. And I was able to find this, this, this interview on YouTube and Hepper says, I see, I've seen a lot of rape scenes in my life. She encourages it. Susan George's character, Amy, mm-hmm. she encourages him in a way by kissing him, but this give and take, but this is a give and take until she allows herself to be raped. And this is like a consistent thing that really kind of opened my eyes in a way to like where to be entertained by a, a, a a fluff action film as Peckinpah sees this mm-hmm. was not okay. Cause this movie, even though it's final sequence is, is massively entertaining. And even though it has really good moments of, of really visceral violence that, that, you know, would be kind of the floodgate to the sort of violence that I like to see in action and horror films. Everything about this film is dipped in the, in a sleaze that Tobe Hooper in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also a problematic person because he made his actress run through bushes, actually cut her and everything. He was also a piece of shit, but that would make him jealous. This this movie, this movie's such a travesty of, of um, base sensibility that it made me question and has made me, has brought to me after this the inherent question every time I see a movie where I, I'm looking for a visceral gut experience uh-huh. is what this film doing morally to get there decent. Like, am I, yeah. Am I allowed to actually enjoy what I'm seeing or is this, do, or is this movie doing something wrong? It's created for me a straw dogs test. And this is why it's here on the list is because it's, it's the one movie that's going to show up this high on the list that I don't, actively like and like gone with the wind in a lot of ways would like to see wiped from the zeitgeist of, yeah. of film yep because it's unlike you know wild bunch which which still has a lot of toxic masculinity and pizzazz it's not actively degenerative to its performance well uh, and you I'll can justify it. you can justify some of the wild bunch's um misogyny in the fact that it's a period piece it's you know it's it's of a specific time in a specific location where you know i suppose mythologically that stuff is kind of it's what's expected of of that specific section of the united states at that time um but you you can't get away with that here no here here it's just a a sign of a problem with the filmmaker um it, it absolutely is 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 victim shaming, um, and you know you could you look at at films that would come out around the same time and have that same sort of sexuality. Look at last week, Persona. Yeah. You know, Persona, a film that predates it by five years, that has a woman dealing with um, dealing with sexual independence and dealing with with. Maybe, maybe I don't want to say a shaky sexual interlude, but but definitely a a non-normal sexual interlude. But it's done with a real command of, of personality and a real command of mm-hmm. of idea of autonomy. Uh-huh. Um, 
that it ends up being a perfectly fine sequence, a perfectly fine film, even with its kind of quote unquote uh, uh, transgression of normalcy, whereas this in its attempt to do so ends up just being sleazed. It ends up being Mm. Caligula. uh, but Caligula, the problem with that analogy is that Caligula is stupid. Like, well, no, I know. I, that's no. what I said. But you, you, yeah, I was hyperbole, Tom. Hyperbole. I love it. Um, I'm glad. A footnote of a footnote. I'm glad we you brought up the Pauline Kale review, which is fucking great. Every time I want to jump off the Pauline Kale bandwagon, I find a review that so perfectly encapsulates what I think people should be thinking about a certain movie that it was like, oh my god, she's so good. This review is so fucking good. We should actually put a link to it on um on the on the Twitter. So instead of it'll be Berg hashtag Bergman Bergman facts parentheses Pauline Kale colon straw dogs. Right? That's how we'll do it. Uh, <laughs> semi semi uh, semi colon peck and paw edition. Do you think that'll catch uh, on culturally? A hashtag with like four punctuation marks in it. Um, the line that gets me from the Pauline Kale review is all the stuff that you said. I got I got that all highlighted. See, see, highlighted. I got all that stuff highlighted. The line that gets me is in the second paragraph. It's the end of the second paragraph. It says, "His intuitions as a director are infinitely superior to his thinking," and uh, it was like a thing that like. When I was watching this movie again, and it was a, I watched this movie in the s- same context that you watched it, where it's just a movie. If you've watched enough movies and you're kind of into that subversive film thing, you know what I mean. You want to see the, you want to see the boundaries pushed a little bit, which I definitely did. At some point, you got to watch Straw Dogs, and it was that's how it was positioned. You know what I mean? It's positioned as one of those kind of like um, antagonistic you know, um, outsider films. Um, at least when I was, when I was like a teenager, it, straw dogs was not like part of like the, uh, the outside film culture or, or out of like, it wasn't part of the larger film culture. It was definitely like a niche thing. It was like a cult. It was like a cult movie. If you went to the video store, it would be in the cult section for sure. You know what I mean? With the, the black and white cover with the broken glasses and all that other stuff. Um, I mean, it was it was banned, and like, you were in college when it was unbanned in England, I think. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, it was like unbanned in two thousand two. That makes sense in England because it makes English people seem like the scum of the earth. Um, which which is the another... major the major the major's an okay guy, I guess. Which is another line in here that that I love. Uh, where is it? Where is it? It's about the human garbage. Oh yeah. It's the triumph of a superior man. So basically this, you know, the way that this movie ends is, you know, David kills everybody or he shoots them in the foot or he throws hot oil on them enough to kind of be declared the victor here. It's the triumph of a superior man who is fighting for basic civilized principles over men who are presented as mindless human garbage. Oh, Pauline Kale's so fucking good. Um, but that's kind of what it is. Everybody in this movie is trash. 
to Sam Peckinpah, and then at the end of the movie, and including Susan George, who is almost like the biggest piece of trash, um, as presented by Sam Peckinpah, and then at the end of the movie, you know, David believes he has his principles in place. You know, he's not going to give, um, he's not going to give him up to 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 the to the band of whatever marauders or the angry four person mob that's outside. But by the end of the movie, he's subverting his principles. So there's no principled people in this movie. The one guy with principles is dead. He got shot in the chest and got and flew halfway across the yard. Um, so he's, and it's the other thing that Pauline Kael kind of the point that she makes in her review is that he has sunk everybody into this muck. There's no higher principles available in straw dogs at all. And, Basically, while you're watching this movie, if you are a film person and you feel like you must watch Straw Dogs and you should get into... I mean, there's aspects of Peck and Paul that I think you ha- kind of have to watch. I, I have this conversation with my family all the time about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame likes to believe that like the 80s never happened. The 80s just... There was no rock and roll in the 80s. We just went immediately from Metallica to Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and that's it. Like... There's no ba there's no Bauhaus in, in in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, well there's fine. No, there's no Bauhaus. There's no The Cure. There's no or maybe maybe The Cure got in this year finally. There's no like Soundgarden's not in. Um, Depeche Mode isn't in. All these bands that were kind of like huge bands. Like I I hate to break to the Rock and Roll of Fame Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but like Depeche Mode was one of the big bands of the '80s. Doesn't matter here. You can't get from one part of cinema to the other part of cinema without looking at Sam Peckinpah from an aesthetic point of view. You just can't do it. But that comes with consequences. And the consequences are you're going to feel like total fucking garbage when you watch this movie. You just are because he makes you feel like that. There is nothing redeeming about this movie except for the last 20 minutes. I mean that's but the last twenty minutes are and that's, weirdly uh, from an aesthetic standpoint. From yeah. an aesthetic standpoint, and but but from a moral standpoint also, like oh that's I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah, yeah. So the re- the redemptions like all aesthetics and those aesthetics are are like unfortunately amazing, um, but it sucks. I mean it's a, it's a shitty it's. <laughs> It's a really shitty experience and not even just from a moral standpoint, but like from a filmmaking standpoint, when he is not, when he is not fully engaged in killing people, it almost seems like he's never made a movie before. Those scenes between David and Amy in the house are a train wreck. They're a train wreck. They make Vast of Night look like E.T. Like just from like a filmmaking perspective. They, it looks like he's never shot two people talking before. To make lovebirds look like the apartment. <laughs> well, and and I guess uh, the, good one. I find the analysis of this almost more interesting than I do the film itself. Yeah, I, so and that's people, very valid. So many people, even to this day, try to like morally justify what Peckinpah's doing and saying that he's like ahead of his time in what he's doing, and it's just not true. Like he wasn't making any sort of loud condemnations on violence. And he certainly as shit wasn't making any loud condemnations on gender roles. Like this, this new kind of hot no. take like this, there was this like a, there's this little white lies. I think it's little white lies review um, during that came out 
during like the BFI um, retrospective on Dustin Hoffman, which I figure will not ever happen again. Uh, <laughs> Was like was like oh like Peckinpah's like making a real statement on you know Amy's truly the main character and you know it's it's her story we're following and you know like the rape focuses only on her face because of the fact that like she's the part of it and it's like the only reason the rape focuses on her face is because Susan George said like she went in and kept demanding to have like a, an interview with Peck and Paul, like to have a, a sit down meeting. Uh-huh. And um, like, that was the one thing he'd give her. The one thing he'd give her was like the fact that she would only agree to it if the camera was on her face and that she could sell it. Cause like, according to Peck and Paul, it was like, what she said, it was like, uh, you know, I, I, he finally agreed to a meeting. He said, you know, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to write it down for you? Write down what I'm going to do. Cause apparently in the script is just like the men rape her. And she says, yeah, it, that would, if that'd be easier for you, yeah, write it down. That would help. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. You knew when you took this movie, the scene would be in the movie. If you have any problems with it, why'd you take the movie? And he said, I will tell you this. You're going to be naked. Two men are going to attack you. One is going to have sex with you. And the other one is going to, she says, bugger you, but I assume Peckin probably, probably said, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Um, and later on in that, that Playboy interview, he says, you know, Amy's enjoying the experience. You know, the, the, he's still talking about Kale. He's like, does does Kale not know anything about sex dominating and being dominated? The fantasy, too, of being taken by force is certainly one way people make love. There's no end to the fantasies of lovemaking, and this is one of them. Sure, Amy's enjoying it, at least with the first hombre who takes her. The second one is a bit more than she bargained for, but that's one of the prices she plays for playing her little game. There's always a price to pay, doctor. And it's like, that motherfucker is not making any fucking statement whatsoever on misogyny he is just being a part of the problem and to have like dustin hoffman you know go out and say like like oh this is a real testament to a man reclaiming things or to have you know dennis hopper try to exclaim like oh it's a real or have uh, you know say like oh she she kind of asked for it or to have these people say like it's a real interesting perspective on rape and and power play it's like no it's a fucking sleazy exploitation yeah. film that's done with less of a fine touch than Wes Craven did with fucking Last House on the Left, yeah. which is an actual like exploitation horror film. And, and, and I, I think the movie, the reason this movie sits here is like, uh, you know, all these films I was seeing in the oeuvre of, of great cinema at the time, like I was either enjoying or not enjoying but I was enjoying them because, you know, they, they did things that worked for me or I was not enjoying them because I found them boring or they just didn't connect with me. They were the Jean-Luc Godard breathless of, of <laughs> the weekend. You know, um, they just weren't, they weren't doing it for me. Um, this doesn't work. Like this, this, this made an impression on me because it doesn't work because it's, it's, it's fucking gross. And it, and it, and it made me feel gross that I found a bit of it entertaining because yeah. everything about it's so gross. Like it has fine pieces of filmmaking, like it's undeniably technically so fucking proficient at times because Peckinpah was a talented visual artist. Yep. But it's so fucking gross from a moral standpoint. Oh, I I 100% agree with you, and I think the problem with the movie, I think Paul Pauline Kale articulates it in the in her review, is that 
the way that Peckinpah shoots this is that she does, she like is asking for it. And the problem with that is that he's, and Pauline Kale articulates this as well, is that he just sees women as this. This is what women, this is what women do. In Peckinpah's eyes, women are just this. And so there's no real, um, it's almost like pure misogyny. So the idea that it could be a commentary on misogyny is fucking hilarious because you're only a man if you take advantage in, in the in the mind of this movie you're only a man if you take advantage of like these things that women are like begging to give to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, because and that's, even look at your protagonist, David. David David fucking psychologically torments her throughout the entire beginning of this movie. Belittles her. He's a notionally manipulative piece of shit. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, that's the weird thing about this movie, too. I mean, amongst other things, is that he's a pretty, like, poor excuse for a hero. You know, even he's by no the hero. He's, even by the he's end of this bad, movie, he's, he's a shitty guy. Villain. Yeah. Um, so it's it was it's the only person the only person you can look at has like the slightest amount of hero besides the major is the of mice and men style David Warner performance you know Oh, poor David Warner I mean he's wasn't really appreciated until Ninja Turtles Secret of the Ooze so you know <laughs> yeah people are just like oh the guy got decapitated in the Omen and then they're like oh shit. <laughs> also good also a good David Warner performance. Oh, David Warner. Is he dead? No, he's he's still kicking. Good for him. Good for you, David Warner. Keep it up. Maybe maybe Spike Lee could give him a movie and give him an Oscar. Oh, let's not count our let's count our chickens before they hatch, Mario. We'll I'm have, very excited. We'll have lots I'm of I'm very excited We're recording too. This on Thursday. I'm very excited for that movie. We will have lots of opportunities later in the year to be disappointed in what happens with the Oscars. So um Let's let's not start might, now. Might not be, hopefully, there might not be enough movies to where they're forced to give it. And you know what? I, I won't withhold judgment until I see Five Bloods. But I have just this gut feeling that that movie's gonna, gonna hit, gonna connect. Yeah, um, we'll find out next week. We'll find it next week. All right, we'll be right back. Are we good? Are you good? That was good. Yeah, I think that. Okay. That sells it, yeah. Oh, that was good. Um, we'll be right back with my number twenty-seven. Welcome back. Uh, my number 27, again, without introduction, because I don't know how to do the introductions. One day I'll figure it out. Maybe when I do my number one. That was one, an introduction. This is, this is an introduction, though. Maybe when I do my number one, I'll get, I'll get this introduction thing down. It is uh, the 2001 film from Wes Anderson, The Royal Tenenbaums. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Now, for the first time in 22 years. I hear you're dying. Ooh, how long are you going to last? A month, a year. I've got six weeks to set things right. 
<laughs> they are all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. <laughs> uh, Royal Tenenbaum, as played by Gene Hackman, is the patriarch of a family of geniuses, although he's not really very involved in their lives, as he uh, divorces his wife, Ethelene, played by Angelica Houston, fairly early on in the children's life. Uh, the children are Chaz, Richie, and Margot. They are played respectively by Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, Margot is adopted, and she is a, a genius playwright. Richie is a tennis star from a very young age, and Chaz is a, a business whiz. Um, and they ob- attain some kind of cultural recognition as, as a family of geniuses. Uh, needless to say, I suppose, because there wouldn't be a movie if this wasn't the case, things don't necessarily go, uh, stay that way for the Tenenbaums. Uh, Richie kind of flames out as a tennis star. Margo doesn't write plays anymore. And Chaz is slowly... Uh, breaking or quickly breaking under the uh, the trauma of losing his wife in a plane crash. Uh, there are many ancillary characters in this movie, as it is a Wes Anderson movie, so it wouldn't be one without uh, five extra characters played by very famous people. Uh, one of them is Eli Cash, played by Owen Wilson. He lived across the street from the Tenenbaums growing up and always wished that he could be a Tenenbaum. Um, Bill Murray plays Raleigh Sinclair. He is Margot's husband. Uh, maybe her like eighth husband from his, you know, from the movie's autobiography that it lays out for her. Uh, Ethelene is seeing and then subsequently engaged and married to, um, Henry Sherman, who is an accountant played by Danny Glover. And Alec Baldwin provides, uh, in what I, you could argue is maybe his, second third best performance as an actor again movies uh as is the narrator of the royal tenenbaums i'm thinking of i'm thinking of the departed and the cooler as also on this list and we'd have to debate which where that kind of falls not the getaway remake and the shadow no neither of those nor the nor the nor the hunt for red october um unfortunate yeah unfortunate um and again, we're not counting Thirty Rock here, and maybe we should. Maybe we'll put those four things on like a. Are thing. we counting his brother's his brother's hallmark performance in Biodome? Well, we can count not Biodome, but maybe Backdraft. I do love me some Backdraft. I do love. My favorite part about Backdraft is Robert De Niro reprising his role from Brazil in in Backdraft. As far as I'm concerned, it's the same role. It's just Harry Tuttle in a different. In a different time continuum. Um, in 2001, Mario, I was 19 years old. And when I saw the Royal Tenenbaums many, many, many times, uh, I just assumed that it would stay uh, a profound viewing experience for my whole life. And then uh, things happened in uh, my life later that kind of confirmed that that would be the case, but it's, it's 27 because it, it kind of hasn't, it's stayed a pleasant, a, a pleasant thing, but not necessarily one that holds up 
in the same way that I assume that it did when I first saw it. I, I, I will hear what you thought when you saw it. This is my first Wes Anderson. This is my only Wes Anderson movie. We talked about, uh, we haven't talked about a Wes Anderson movie in like 70, 70 films, 60 something, something like that. A long, long time. Um, yeah, Rushmore is the last one. And that was in the 90s, right? For you? Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom. Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. So this is Wes Anderson's third feature after Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And I think one of the things that distinguishes this film, which I had seen by the time I seen uh, Royal Tenenbaums, I was excited for Royal Tenenbaums. What distinguishes this movie over those movies is that Bottle Rocket is Bottle Rocket. It's a first feature. It kind of um, articulates a, a vision. It articulates an aesthetic. Um, uh Rushmore finds a way to aestheticize um, a viewpoint. So he's not aestheticizing the whole world. It's He uses his aesthetic to signal how Max Fisher sees the world. Um, the world of Bombs is different in the sense that the whole universe is aestheticized. He has created his own um, block and a half or whatever of New York that didn't exist before it exists here, but somehow still feels oddly eternal. It is a place that you want. If you are into this movie, if you, if you, if you hew towards this movie, if you steer towards it, you want to find at some point, you want to experience something of this kind of New York lifestyle, the, the lifestyle that when you go out into the street, um, in the wintertime and a few flakes are falling that the Charlie Brown Christmas music, um, Christmas time is here is just somehow playing in the background of what you're doing. It is um, the New York of just there being a park with a pond just just there somewhere that you could just walk next to whenever you want to have a conversation with somebody. Um, it is the New York of, of fancy backyards and elaborate um, staircases that – they're always I think he says at one point in the in the narration that the fourth floor is a top floor, but they're on the fourth floor in a bunch of instances, and there is more a staircase on the fourth like above the fourth floor. Um all of the things that Wes Anderson has been doing literally his entire career are um here and done more perfectly here than they will be for the rest of anything he ever does. I'm, and I haven't seen the French dispatch. I hope the French dispatch is good, but I've been roundly disappointed with pretty much everything he's done since the Royal Tenenbaums. Why is that? I think the reason that is because he's in the Royal Tenenbaums. He doesn't aestheticize the world necessarily, although he does, but it's in service of an emotion. So I don't know how you feel about this, Mario, but one of the things you notice about Wes Anderson films is that there's no more, graphic suicides in Wes Anderson movies. There's no more um, fairly relatable father-son conflicts that can be had to in, in Wes Anderson movies. There are no more, again, fairly relatable questions about what it means to be part of a family and what it means to, what, like, the nature of blood. There's no more conversations about that in Wes Anderson movies but all of that stuff is here in this movie these are real emotions that he has used his style his aesthetic and then subsequently used that aesthetic and synthesized it in the form of a kind of faux novel or a faux autobiography 
um, a faux piece of literature that further aestheticize it. So this, these emotions are removed like two times over. So they're, they're because they could become Wes Anderson emotions. This is where the Wes Anderson aesthetic fully blossoms. You know what I mean? Where he's using his aesthetic to avoid doing anything else, frankly, except in the genius moment in Grand Budapest Hotel where um, Willem Dafoe throws a cat out the window. I mean, that's I've gone I've gone this long, Mario, from the Royal Tenenbaums to Willem Dafoe throwing a cat out the window in the Grand Budapest Hotel to caring about anything that Wes Anderson is, is doing. Um, to that end, there's a lot of other things on top. Actually, I want to get you in here first before I like go any further because any further it becomes like very personal and I, I imagine all you can really say after that is like, well, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, I just I <laughs> I have an incredibly frustrating experience of Royal Tenenbaums, and coming back to it, that frustration still exists. Um, I am of two minds of Wes Anderson. I enjoy when he does his aesthetic in service of a story first and foremost, which I find Rushmore does to the nth degree. Oh, there's um, no story here. I mean, and it. It, no. the the no story just ties itself up like pretty purposelessly by the end of the movie so well and, and with this it's it, I'll, I'll i'll get to that but, but like the, the rushmore is like the visual aesthetic the everything that's being done is is done simply for the point of for me to to is is in service of the narrative yeah. or exactly. um Moonrise Kingdom to me is kind of that that perfect blend of that, that perfect encapsulation of just absolute substance over anything else. Like it's it's a razor wire thin plot, um, but to me the substance has the most control there, and it's not as overstated as it is in Isle of Dogs or Grand Budapest Hotel, where it the substance then overwhelms everything where the substance begins overwhelming the substance. Like he starts layering on his color palette with his negative space or with the symmetry of his shots. Like Moonrise Kingdom is at least composed in a way where each of those things kind of takes center stage first and foremost um, without being kind of muddled by everything else. My issue with Royal Tannenbaums is I saw Royal Tannenbaums, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost positive, I had to have, after I'd seen Rushmore, and that's how I'm remembering it right now. I'm not 100% sure, but it has to be that way. Um, or I saw it very close to one another. But Rushmore made so much more of an impact on me because everything so uh, combined synergistically that Royal Tannenbaums felt as though there was a lot too much bravado on it there's there's a lot of really solid moments in royal tannenbaums that that work um needle in the hay sequences yeah we'll is, get there visually visually just a, a fantastic moment um well with that said there's there's such a a, a vast dissidence for me between some of the visual motifs he's presenting and um, the characters he's presenting. And I feel as though this, to me, approaching this, it feels like it's supposed to be a character piece first and foremost, and that it ends up becoming muddled 
by just all of his experimentation is what his experimentation that would eventually become his his signature like like this is where he's truly experimenting with everything well so then i would argue that i would argue too that that experimentation becomes his crutch um and i actually absolutely and i would kind of disagree that so you mentioned rushmore before and i think this is like a very valid conversation to have rushmore is a real world he's presenting rushmore as a real world and all the aesthetic things that um, Wes Anderson does, which would become his crutch, are in service of establishing how Max views that world, the world around him. You know what I mean? It's a very personal thing. No one else experiences except maybe um, Dennis the Menace. Oh, fuck, what's his name? Uh, the kid's name. No, I, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I can't remember what I'm talking about. Yeah. Dennis the Menace. Um, he... But I actually don't think that I actually think that Royal Tenenbaums is much less of a character study than Rushmore, in the sense that the characters are less significant here, maybe except for the except for Royal, than the aesthetic, and the aesthetic he is. But there's still there's still an importance to the characters. There's an importance to the characters, but they're kind of defined by. They're not necessarily do- like so. You go to the scene where Richie is waiting for Margot at the at the bus station, okay, at the, or at the Port Authority. She's waiting for the Green Line bus. She gets off that bus, and there's like two seconds of silence before uh, these Nico's these days come in. He's not. That's awesome, and it sends chills up my spine whenever I see it. And it is perfect, and it is pretty much the ideal way to view. Gwyneth Paltrow in a movie. I mean, that's, I think in a lot of ways for a lot of people that has become, when you think of Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress, you think of just Margot Tenenbaum getting off that bus and Nico's deep voice, you know, resonating underneath those, that, those guitar, those pick guitar lines. Um, But that also stands in as an illustration of her character. Like he has told you things about her character and I think the narration in this movie is fucking genius. It's one of like the great narrated films of all time. I'm thinking specifically of when, um, when Royal kind of realizes that like, you know, this has been the best six weeks of my life. And then it's like, at that moment he realized that was true. And then you get the Gene Hackman eyes and the Gene Hackman face kind of experiencing that, that knowing. So the narrator knows it before, like the character in the film knows it. It's like a perfect, it's like a perfect representation of a novel. It's fucking great. But to get back to the Gwyneth Paltrow thing, that scene, that's, is that a bat? Did you see a bat? <laughs> he's sh- uh, folks, he's shaking his head. There was a, there was a flicker, there was a flicker of, of light, which ended up, I, I think had to have been a car, but I instantly went like, yeah. That. Honestly, if something lands behind you on the wall, I will tell you. I will tell you if a bat like clings to your face. That's it's character building. Um that scene that's just it's it's like oh, I'm off track now cuz of the bat. Not your fault, just the bat's fault. It's who she is somehow. You know what I mean? How Richie sees her is actually who she is as a character. In the same way that, like, um, you know, the the Nick Drake in the Ruby Tuesday 
after after uh, Richie has gotten out of the hospital. You know when they're 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 waiting. He's like he's gotten out. And he's waiting for the bus, and that Nick Drake the fly plays. And it's really slow, and then he goes into the tent, and he's and Margot's waiting for him, and then they he puts on the Rolling Stones record, and eventually Ruby Tuesday comes on. That's a kind of it's an aesthetic definition of character, which is a little harder, I think, to pull off sometimes in film than just explaining who a character is through dialogue or through clothing things. I think one of the genius things about this movie is that Wes Anderson removes clothing as a signifier because everyone's always wearing the same thing. And that becomes part of their character also. So, but you, that, that character never shifts. So you can't say like, well, she was wearing this at this time and she was wearing this at this time. They're all wearing the same thing all the time. So it's, it's like a, a a steady sense of who this person is um to the you know to go to margo again i think who is margo margo is nico these days and the ramones judy is a punk that is that is margo in in a nutshell figure that out if you can figure out how those two songs make a person you have figured out like who margo is and I, but i think that's i think that's weirdly valid and I think each of these characters, maybe save Chaz, has an aesthetic signifier that tells you who that character is supposed to be. And the the re- end result of that is you don't feel like you're in the real world. You don't feel like you're in a world where, you know, when was the last movie you saw where the name of the cab company or the nature of the cab company was like significant? You know what I mean? Like a gypsy cab. They call a gypsy cab. Every single cab is a fucking wreck. You know what I mean? Like why yeah. is that? Why is that significant? It's significant because he kind of tells you it's significant. The aesthetic tells you it's significant. Like what about it? It's the fact that it doesn't exist here. Um, it's somehow not real. And the fact that you can define a person. I mean, this is one of the things. It's, it's a major. It's a thing that I think about all the time. The idea that you can define a person by, you know, a song or or a or a thing, like someone can be most defined by that thing. And I just I just wrote a paper on high fidelity, and like the you know uh, the book, and it's in the movie too. But like Nick Hornby kind of does this in the book that like you know at some point Rob, uh, he organizes his his records autobiographically, and the only way that he can find a record, the only way that you can find a record is you have to be Rob. Is the only way that you can find it. And essentially, he's just created a kind of record collection version of himself. And I think that's kind of what's at play here in the Royal Tenenbaums. And for me, as someone, if you've been following this podcast, and there may be like one or two of you who have been following closely from beginning to end or who are catching up or whatever, that's like a major thing for me. Um, and I did that first come to fruition here. I don't know if it first did because High Fidelity is the year before this, and I think I read the and I read the book a little bit before I saw the movie High Fidelity, um, so it was definitely in play. But there's something like oddly appealing about the Royal Tenenbaums in a way that like it isn't, or that High Fidelity kind of isn't, and it's a it's a it's a transportive sensation. Um, to that end, like when I, you know, you mentioned Needle in the Hay before, which is Richie is 
what is Richie? Richie is his suit and he is needle in the hay. He is, you know, composed and bland, but like secretly deep. Um, when I, you know, in 2005, when I did what Richie did was, was this scene from the Royal Tenenbaums in my head when I did it a hundred percent. Like I, I actually, I, I, I don't think I can confirm that. Like I can't confirm it. Like I don't remember thinking about it, but was it there? I, it, it has to be there. It, it definitely had to be there. It, it solidified like the nature of what that, that level of sadness could be and was, and it sounds like Elliot Smith singing needle in the hay. It looks like, you know, a bathroom mirror, um, you know, a white sink and all that other stuff, that stuff, it, it, it formed such a full picture of that level of sadness that Wes Anderson hasn't done anything like that since. Um, I think the interesting thing about Royal Tenenbaums, and, and I think you'll probably agree with this, is that as the years have gone by, most of that stuff has kind of been washed away. And now you're just left with like a pretty good movie. It's pretty good. It has a massive narrative hole in the middle of it. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, it just kind of at, it ties together at the end. I don't think, I used to think that Ben Stiller was great in this. Um, but then Greenberg came out and then, you know, I don't love Greenberg, but he's better in Greenberg than he is in this. Um, I even think that some of the night at the museum movies came out. Do you see a bat? What? I heard something weird and it's around the same time as it was last night. So now I'm freaking out. Good. I'm definitely calling this episode. Mario sees a bat. (laughs) Good. That's like the overarching theme. No, no, but like, and then I want to bring you back in here because I think that's really necessary. I mean, I don't love Gwyneth Paltrow. I think this is Gwyneth Paltrow's best movie. I don't love either of the Wilson brothers necessarily. I think I like them. I think they're fine. This is 100% their best movie. I feel sad that Gene Hackman made Welcome to Mooseport after this because this would have been the perfect Gene Hackman movie. This would have been the perfect movie to go out on. It's a movie, I don't know if you remember this, but when this movie came out, everyone just assumed uh, Gene. I just Enemy just, of the State. Okay. Was that after this? The perfect, oh, no, no, no. That was before. It's 99. I don't know if you remember this, but everyone just assumed Gene Hackman was winning Best Picture for this movie. I mean, this is the Ethan Hawke performance of... Oh, yeah, like Best support, best Actor. Best yeah, Actor, yeah. yeah. This is like the Ethan Hawke from First Reformed like performance of this era. I mean... He doesn't, he doesn't even get nominated, right? He doesn't even get nominated. Um, yeah, I'm trying. It gets a screenplay nomination. It gets a screenplay nomination. So, I mean, Denzel Washington and Training Day wins. Fine, I can I can deal with that. Um, but everyone just assumed he was. But Training Day wasn't on anybody's radar, and this was this was the movie. Like Gene Hackman was like cemented, and he won a gold and he won a Golden Globe for it also. Um, but it's become. It's become a pleasant movie with a lot of really cool things. And from a director who I, I kind of like, but who I haven't ever liked as much as I liked here. And I hated Steve Zizou. Mm. Um, I, I, I am kind of indifferent to the Darjeeling Limited. and um, I like Darjeeling Limited. Moonrise King. Yeah, we've talked about Darjeeling Limited a lot, uh, like at the bar and stuff. 
Uh, Moonrise Kingdom is fine. Um, I really disliked Grand Budapest Hotel a lot, except for the fact that F. Murray Abraham was in it. Um, he wasn't in it enough. Um, and yeah, then, cat. And Willem Dafoe threw that cat out the window, which <laughs> which is amazing. Oh, I gotta get some Dafoe. Gotta get gotta get some Dafoe in me. Um, but it's both weird. those animated films are bad. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the Fantastic Mr. Fox just kind of like as a family ish movie. You know, it's fine, but I don't really give a shit. And I love dogs. I could I don't care about it at all. Um, but it's weird when these movies kind of. I think maybe a little bit. Straw Dogs is the same, but we've talked about this before, definitely on this podcast, where these movies kind of transition. Their importance doesn't go away, but these movies transition from something you care about um, actively as a film to something that you remember as defining uh, a moment of your life, but as a film or just kind of like, that's a, that's a good movie. I mean, I remember like this. the songs in this movie were the songs that I was obsessed with in 2001. The artists that were featured in this movie are the artists that I was obsessed with in, in, in 2001. But now I'm just like, I, I listen to it and I watch it and whatever. And it's, it's fine. And it brings back interesting memories. I'll say interesting memories. Um, but as a, as a movie, I'm just like, yeah, all right. I mean, the best part of the movie is still the paintings in Eli Cash's house. Um, of those weird guys on motorcycles and those masks with no shirts on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are st- like I love. I love when I discovered. I think I saw this movie like three or four times in theaters, and when we just when we like finally noticed those paintings, <laughs> it was like the best day of our life, and it was sad because it wasn't quotable. You couldn't <laughs> quote those paintings. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's in. Uh, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's we've entered a weird. We've en- and next week is going to be equally weird, not for the same reasons that I'm not going to have the same personal, like, touchstone associated with next week's movie. But next week's movie is also going to be weird. And next and, week's movie is a little weird for me as well. But yeah, not not as weird. Yeah, it's it's weird because I I feel like how many times have we said weird in the past five minutes? Um. It's it's interesting because of the fact that I feel as though Royal Tenenbaums has a lot of an emotional punch to people. Like Grand Budapest Hotel, I think does too for a newer generation. Um, but yeah, I never just never responded to Royal Tenenbaums beyond like an intellectual level. Yeah, and I guess maybe it's because like. When I had seen it, I had also just seen stuff like Requiem for a Dream and all that. So, like, those were a bigger emotional gut punch to me mm-hmm. at the time. And, like, they, those were... Me too. I, I was... I was. It was it may not necessarily a gut punch, because obviously, but more in line with where I was from a narrative standpoint or from where I... What, what I... I'm at this point 15 or so, 14, mm-hmm. 15... 14 i'd say probably so like uh it was it was my expectation of, of what a film is and so when i came into world tana bombs i was let down and so i kind of put up a wall with it mm-hmm. um so yeah i never had that i don't know i i actually like even though west Anderson shows up on my list like twice he, it's so it's he never really at least for 
the generation in which I'm in never made as much of an impact as he, as I feel he made for everybody else. Well, that's, I mean, and I think that's probably a valid, I don't know. You just, maybe you missed it because I think when you, the Wes Anderson movies that you got when you were like in it were minor things. And when Royal Tenenbaums came out, it was like the only thing that anybody cared about. And I wouldn't necessarily say it was an Oscar movie because I don't think it, it existed back then, but not in the same way that it does now. I just they, they probably assumed that it wasn't. I mean, I think they thought that Gene Hackman was going to get nominated and what have you. But it, I don't think it was, you know, um, it wasn't Oscar bait per se, but it meant it meant something. Like the new, a new Wes Anderson movie was something really different than it became like for the next seven or eight years after that. From actually probably from when Royal Tenenbaums came out till Moonrise Kingdom. Actually, no. From when Royal Tenenbaums came out till Grand Budapest Hotel, nobody really was super interested in what Wes Anderson was doing. He was doing stuff and people were happy to but have Moonrise it. Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom certainly raised eyes. Well, least, I think Moonrise like... Kingdom kind of put them back on a, on the map of people that you needed to watch. Yeah. Um, and so when Grand Budapest Hotel came out, everyone was just like, "Whoa, you know, this movie is great. Um, and I think I think now we're in the Wes Anderson renaissance. They were, ro- they, were they were wrong. But... They were very, very wrong. Um, <laughs> that's a different... That's a different conversation. We could do an, a non-pivotal film list, and we could <laughs> we could talk about how Grand Budapest Hotel fits in that. Um, but it's weird because I'm like looking. I'm still like weirdly looking forward to uh, the French Dispatch. Yeah, I guess it's it, it's. It, I am too, and it's more a thing because like he's a wildly talented filmmaker. Absolutely, he's, he's a, an incredibly solid writer, especially. But he he seems lazy to me well it always feels it bums me out that real lazy yeah it's it it makes me so sad that he still does stuff that he was doing you know i don't know 20 years ago at this point maybe you know more um in his movies like well you gotta do you have to do something different we can't be just do this forever can we yeah i mean i don't know i mean i gotta say like the the French Dispatch trailer didn't inspire confidence in me, but I'm holding out some hope, some hope that he breaks from this mold at some point. Well, I just imagine that putting someone like putting people like Timothy Chalamet and like featuring again Saoirse Ronan in his movies is going to be um, like a kind of firecracker in his in his movies, and that's a stupid thing to say, but a kind of like igniter. Um, because he hasn't had somebody like that in, in a long time. Like I, I think about, I mean, I know Saoirse Ronan was in Grand Budapest Hotel, but she wasn't in like a major role. I, I, I'm sorry to Ray Fiennes, um, but he doesn't do it for me. He doesn't get like the hair standing up on like the back of my neck. Um, but you know, Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan and Bill Murray, I guess, to a certain extent, because he's in so little, um, you know, still kind of do. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects. And even Edward Norton in, in, a, in a, um, 
Wes Anderson movie is is interesting, more way more interesting than anything he was doing before. And I'm happy that he's kind of abandoned the um the Schwartzmans and the Wilsons to the sideline after all these years and has has found a new kind of cadre of people that he can carry along with him and, and to make his movies. Um yeah, like I'm I'm definitely interested to see like what Elizabeth Moss will look like in a in a Chalamet film or Matthew Almerich will look like in a in, not a Chalamet film in a uh in a, no, it's Anderson a Chalamet film. film. Yeah. Elizabeth Moss should be in Dune. That's the takeaway from I'm this glad podcast. He's keeping Bob I'm glad it, I'm glad he's keeping Bob Balaban though. You got to you got to always keep the Bob Balaban. You have to have all the Bob Balaban. As much Bob Balaban as you can take. So now, did you... I mean, when a movie when a movie doesn't have Bob Balaban, are you like, are you even a movie? Well, when a movie doesn't have Bob Balaban, and I think that the movie could have Bob Balaban, it definitely goes down a notch in my esteem. That's true. Like the reason I the reason we didn't love Shirley or Bass the Night, no Bob Balaban. There, I mean, and there is obvious places where you could put a Bob Balaban. You could <laughs> put Bob Balaban in both of those movies. He could play basketball in. The Vast of Night. He could be. Uh, he could play. He could play basketball and Shirley. <laughs> and he, he he won't be shooting any three pointers. But yeah, he could do no, it for sure. He could do it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's Royal Tenenbaums. I'm actually I'm glad Royal Tenenbaums was is over because I was kind of dreading it a little bit. Um, because it was such. I don't know how you feel about this list. But the Royal Tenenbaums for a while, for a few years, was like in the top five. And then like as the years went on, it kind of got pushed back and back and back and back. And you occasionally watch it, and it's a good watch. It's a good hang. So you watch it and be like, well, that's not doing the same thing as it used to do. You know what I mean? And, and it, I don't think it moves any further back than something like 26, 27, 28, whatever. Um, it's not going to hang out in the 60s for sure. Like autobiography is going to dictate that it stays roughly where it is. But as a film, I used to th- I thought this was like the best movie. Like when well, I saw it the first well, time I was like, Oh my, this is one of the great movies I've ever seen. I mean, really my number one film from like the great films of, of my, like when I was at that age are still in my top five mm-hmm. for sure. Um, well, now, I will say that like the one movie that made a major impact on me that, that felt that in the time it came out, and the few years afterwards that imploded after since then we've talked about array and that's passion of the Christ, like mm. passion of the Christ has hadn't made a real impact on me in a few years, but yeah, that's, it's, I, and I guess from an autobiographical standpoint, I was able to kind of just be like, you know, it ultimately didn't make as much of an impact on me as other things did. Yeah. Like, I'm sh- like I, I would even say something like collateral. Don't say it as much as you, as much as you hate that movie still makes, still pops up in my head from a film perspective more than something like passion of the Christ, just passion of the Christ made a much more huge impact in the moment. Um, so yeah, like I, I definitely have, have had those ones where like something's been near the forefront of my top of my list and it's since fell back down. Yeah. All right. That's and it. I'm sure like, and I'm sure like it's, it's interesting. I'm sure like there's, there will be movies that I'm seeing has redo this list, you know, that, have re- redo this list in two years new movies would have popped up and been replaced 
because they're doing different things. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm doing is going back and like I'm, I'm finding a place. I have to find a place for at Eternity's Gate. Um, I'm finding a place for High Life, but I've like thought about High Life a lot, and I used to think that High Life was going to really push some stuff out like towards the top, and maybe it won't push stuff out towards the top. And I think part of that is that, um. I think Claire Denis is going to become like a very big person to me. And I'm interested to have that relationship with Claire Denis now that I would have had it with a director in like my late teens and twenties where like you just find someone and you find a director and you're just kind of like latch onto them. And I haven't had that, you know, and that's a little bit Royal Tenenbaums too, where like, you know, Rushmore, I don't know when you guys watched Rushmore, but Rushmore was like a party film. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of watched it when you were hanging out with your friends. Like we watched Akira, we watched, um, you know, Spinal Tap, we watched Monty Python, but we also watched Rushmore and Clerks, and it was kind of it fit into that like late '90s mold. Um, you know, same for me. But like when we watched movies, we would sit down and actually like watch them. So sure, we we, we, we kind of did too. Um, but and not needless, not that you and me are going to have a party and we're going to be like, listen, people. Everyone drink up. We're going to put on white material. Okay. <laughs> Everyone just get some snacks and a couple of beers and white materials going on. And we're going to have a party. We're not doing that. I mean, but the result of our Claire Denis episode is that now I'm a, and, and, and high life is that now I'm a Claire Denis like disciple and I'm ready to follow Claire Denis to anywhere. Claire Denis wants to go in the same way that after I saw rush, um, rush, the Royal Tenenbaums or like Ghost World or, you know, even something like weird, like um, Amadeus. You know, we were talking about Amadeus. We were talking about Milos Forman before. After I saw Amadeus, I like when I found out the, the Fireman's Ball was so I, I said Throne of Blood was the first criterion I ever got. The second or third criterion I got was the Fireman's Ball. Because Milos Forman had a criterion, and I had to, I had to go to where Milos Forman wanted me to go. I just had to go there. Um, and now I think Claire Denis is kind of like one of those directors. I actually really give a shit about very little like things film wise, other than like when the next Claire Denis movie is going to come out. Um, and it's kind of in the same, it's in, in the same vein though as those other directors. Because right now, where I'm like intensely interested in what they're doing next. Jeremy Saline would be the only one, I think. Is he doing anything? There's, there's nothing on the tableau I've seen. Well, and that's, and he's an interesting person too because he's, he did. What was the name of that werewolf movie? Or not werewolf <laughs> movie, but the. Uh... In, in the dark, into the dark. Into the dark. That one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, he's the Skarsgård movie. Yeah, the Skarsgård. <laughs> yeah. The Sarsgaard. They're all Sarsgaard movies after a certain point. Um, he's got something to prove. I mean, he's got to he's got to do something. He can't just, I don't know, coast. He had three good movies in a row. He can. Uh, I, I will give him one bad one. All right, you can do that. But uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, like I'm not latching myself off. I mean, I do know I'm. I'm conflicted with putting something in my top 10 that I'm re- going to refuse to do. But if I was being earnest with myself in five, three or five years, I'm pretty sure it's, it would show up there. Do it, Mario. Um, 
We all know what you're talking about. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I want to... It depends on when we get to that part of the list, I guess. All right. It took me it took me a year of sitting on on widows before I was comfortable putting it onto the list. So widows is great. <sighs> oh jeez, look at that. Mario has coronavirus. That's it's a yeah because of the bat. I ate, I actually ate the bat. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I went to the grocery store today and I had to sneeze the whole time, but I was so afraid to sneeze because uh, I thought I was going to get like stoned to death or something. I was at work and ran up my stairs with like a the stairs at work with like a because i go into work like once a week yep to get my new cases i get like a 20 pound box and i decided to like sprint up the stairs with my mask on and then i inhaled a bit of cotton yep. from my mask yeah i got just into the back of my throat and then i had like a coughing i had to keep like so i'd go into another room to cough because yep. i was like i can't just cough a lot around my coworkers, even with my mask on because i don't know what they're gonna do well, the library is open now. Um, well, it's going to be open for curbside pickup next week. And I went to work and I worked four hours with a mask on, just kind of getting the library ready to do curbside pickup, like shelving books that we've quarantined for like a month and all this other stuff. And uh, wearing a mask for four hours is a fucking nightmare. And everyone should be giving everyone high fives and Visa gift cards and whatever else you can give to people that have to work every day with a goddamn fucking mask on because i had to i was choking on my own breath after like two after like an hour of just non-stop mask wearing i was like suffocating um and i'm assuming it's something i'll get used to because i generally stay home except to go to the grocery store um but i mean it's it's tough it's gonna be it's gonna be some getting used to but i think it's it's valuable you feel more comfortable it's weird to feel uncomfortable and more comfortable simultaneously because you're wearing your mask. So, um, I I just have not been indoors most times, so I just have luckily not had to have too much mask wearing experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I'm in the grocery store for 40 minutes. When I go out for walks, I don't wear the mask yet because I'm able to socially dis. I have the neighborhood where I can socially distance. Yep. You know, did you so. go get your donuts yet, Mario? I did. You did go get your donuts. Did you wear your mask when you got I your did. donuts? I did get Neil's donuts, so I got Whitney donuts. But I did wear my donuts. I did wear my. I did yeah. wear my donuts. <laughs> I strapped I a donut to my face, and yeah, I mean that would be a delicious form of a mask. Oh, you just gotta like, close up all it. the holes and has. You know, you just have a, a timeline before you have to get back home because eventually the mask will be gone. Let's all do it, folks. You have hornets just you know stinging you in the face, <laughs> eating the donuts as well. That's actually what the Candyman sequel is about in September. Just a man who straps down oh, to his face. Yeah. Um, if you want some news or how-tos on pastry-based masks, you can tweet us <laughs> at Film Pivotal. <laughs> or you can send us an email at uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to pivotalfilm.com where we'll have links to instructions on how to make masks out of pastries um, or scones. Uh, you know, scones, danishes, uh, crullers, all those things. They can all make of, perfectly all good masks. All of those, all of those things are pastries. You want a light and fluffy pastry, something with a lot of holes in it, like so it takes a lot for the germs to get through. Like the Mueller report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, 
<laughs> I don't even know what to say. We're going to do another list movie next week. Uh, or another list next week. We're going to talk about The Five Bloods next week. So, um, you know, if you want to be part of the and conversation. And also King of Staten Island. Well, I don't know. I, I feel like we should give The The Five Bloods like an episode. And then okay. we'll do The King of... Because The King of Staten Island can, review... Can we- I don't trust any of the King... Here's... What's problematic for me? Can, about can, can, we, can, we, can we also at least cover Artemis Fowl, though? I think we should do Have King of Staten Island and Artemis Fowl on the, on the same week. Here's what's bugging me about I feel the like King. we should do The Five Bloods and Artemis Fowl in the same episode. All right. Here's what's bugging me about The King of hilarious. Staten Island, Mario, is that you know who's getting the best reviews in King of Staten Island? Besides Marissa Tomei, which is to be expected. Bill Burr. I'm getting Bill Burr should be nominated for an Oscar stuff from some well, of people these people have been reviews. trying to make Bill Burr a thing forever. So, But Bill Burr is a thing in comedy. Bill Burr nominated for an Oscar for a Pete Davidson movie directed by John Apatow. That's two hours and 36 minutes long. I'm not sure I'm going to side. I, I can't handle that. I don't think. So, Wait, is that how long the movie is? I thought it was just over two hours. No, I thought it was. 36? I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was like two hours and forever. Maybe it's two hours. Six, 136 minutes. 217. Okay, there he is. 137 minutes. Okay. Um, watch a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week. Oh, God, the bat!